Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Hello, I'm Mike Duncan, writer and producer of the History of Rome and Revolutions podcasts. George Washington, 1732 to 1799, was the first president of the United States, serving from 1789 to 1797. He was the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War and one of the founding fathers of the United States. General, if you would please place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. Repeat after me. Friends. I, George Washington... The time for the election of a new citizen to administer the executive government is soon upon us. And the time has come for you to decide who will be clothed with that important trust. The colonies around about the time of Washington's birth so we're talking, you know, the 1720s. So you have three sort of blocks of colonies. You have up in New England, uh, then middle colonies, which are Pennsylvania, New York, and then the southern colonies, Virginia, of those being the most important. 
You've gone through your first wave of the new immigrants getting the colony set up. So Washington is born into a society that is in many ways settled, sort of the the old frontier fight for survival period of the colonies has passed. You have fairly major towns or cities, as we like to call them, which is Boston and Philadelphia and New York are starting to crop up down in Virginia, where Washington is from, you have these large settled landed estates. So Washington is born into a settled colonial situation. And then for him personally, he's in Virginia. And Virginia is large scale plantation society. And of all the colonies, Virginia is the one that most resembles England back home. Up in New England, that was all settled by these you know, Puritan dissidents. So they have they set up something that was almost in opposition to what uh, old world culture was. Whereas down in Virginia, it, in many ways, it resembles what life is like back in England. You have a large, major landowners. You have borderline serfs. There are indentured servants around. Then of course there are slaves everywhere. They're all religiously Anglican. The main sort of economic focus of Virginia, at least for Washington, the guys surrounding him, is tobacco, right? Tobacco is the great cash crop of Virginia. So everybody is basically a tobacco farmer. Uh, What you do is you grow your tobacco, you sell it to these factors, these representatives of companies back in England, you sell it to them. And then in exchange for those sales of just large bales of tobacco, you get all the goods that you need, all your clothes, all your... uh, any manufacturing tools that you need, carriages, whatever, you're getting this from from basically merchants back in England, back in London. So one of the big things going on in Virginia and will plague Washington for his whole life is all of these guys are deeply in debt. Uh, They don't necessarily have a lot of money. They do have a lot of tobacco. So what they have to do is acquire goods off of future tobacco sales. So at at all times in all of these guys' life, uh, they are deeply in debt to merchants back in England, and that will eventually have an effect on their willingness to to stay connected to those merchants who they hated for keeping them in debt. Washington's family situation was that he was he was sort of in the middle rung of Virginia society. The Washingtons, they had they had a plantation, they had land, but they were below the upper tier of the Virginia aristocracy. So, you know, Washington is still going to have to get a job as a land surveyor in order to to make ends meet. So they, they were they were sort of middling, right? They were respected and they were respectable, but he doesn't become sort of the great, rich Virginia aristocrat until he marries the widow Martha Custis. That's what really pole vaults Washington into the the upper echelon of uh, Virginia society. Washington first enters the American consciousness, and really the consciousness of the entire British Empire, in 1753. What's happening at this point is that the French up in Canada, like their colonies up along the St. Lawrence River up in Canada, are extending southwest, and then the British colonies on the eastern seaboard are moving just due west, and they're both moving into the Ohio Valley. Uh, This is going to become the main point of contention between the French and the British in that region of North America. As the British want to push west, and the 
French want to move southwest, they come into conflict with each other. George Washington has recently been made a major in the Virginia militia, and he is given the assignment by the royal governor of Virginia to deliver an ultimatum to the leaders of the French in the Ohio Valley to say, the British are coming, uh, we claim the Ohio Valley, and you better get out or we are going to attack you. So Washington does this, he's a 21-year-old major, and he goes off into the Ohio Valley, and he actually has a fairly raucous adventure. He's, uh, he's dodging Indians, he's betrayed at one point along the way, and it, it comes back that he delivers the ultimatum, and then as he's trying to get back, it's just him and one other guy, and they're like, they're navigating these icy rivers, and he almost drowns. It becomes this, uh, this whole crazy adventure, and when he comes back, he's lauded as this as this adventurous hero and the thing actually gets written up as the journal of major george washington which gets published back in london the british gentleman's magazine june 1754 the french have been lately erecting forts and making settlements upon the river ohio in the western parts of virginia which are known to be property of great britain Major George Washington was sent by Governor Dinwiddie with a letter to the French commandant on that river, by which he was required to depart. Mr. Washington set out on the 31st October 1753 and reached Wills Creek on the 14th November, from whence he proceeded the next day with Mr. Gist, a person whom he had engaged as a guide, a French interpreter, two Indian traders, and some other attendants and servants with horses and proper accommodation for the journey. So he he become, he earns this sort of minor celebrity for his role as this uh, as this young man who's gone off all these daring feats to come back alive. So that's the first time that George Washington's name becomes known. To briefly give a background of the Seven Years' War, what in the United States is called the French and Indian War, is rooted in the great diplomatic reshuffling of 1756, where you have the British and the Prussians now allying with each other against the Austrians and the French for a variety of different reasons. And the French and the Austrians hate each other, but now they're suddenly on the same side. And what this leads to in the North American colonies is, of course, a confrontation between the French and the British over their various colonial holdings. Uh, this is going to occur both up in Canada, which will eventually become the main theater of uh, what we call the French and Indian War, and then down south in the Ohio Valley. This is, this is the main theater for the British colonists. This is what's really important because the British colonists want to move west into the Ohio Valley uh, and they need to get into it before the French are able to lay claim to it. As this confrontation between the French and the British is heating up. You know, Major Washington has delivered this ultimatum to the French. The French obviously ignore this ultimatum. Uh, so Washington comes back. He gets made a colonel in the Virginia militia. He is then tasked with leading out a couple hundred guys into the Ohio Valley to lay claim to what is today Pittsburgh, where the Monongahela meets the Allegheny to form the Ohio River, where the French have already gotten there in advance and set up a little fort. So Washington's job is to go out there and assert this British claim. What winds up happening is he gets out there, finds out that the British have really already taken the spot. He builds hastily a small fort that he winds up dubbing Fort Necessity, 
and then has to fight his first battle ever as a commander, and he pretty well gets trounced. The fort that he built was not in a particularly great spot. It was strategically open to attack by the French and Indians who were using you know, sharpshooting tactics as opposed to just marching up in a, uh, in, a red, in regimental lines to attack him. So over the course of, uh, of fighting out this battle in 1754, Washington gets, gets pretty well beat and he has to retreat. Although when he comes back, he has to hang his head in shame for having gone out and gotten beat. But really the way that the American public and then kind of the British public wind up taking it is that he was up against sort of overwhelming odds and that there was not a lot that he could have done about it, but that in the battle itself, he winds up being personally very brave. And this is something that winds up getting attached to the aura of Washington, uh, which we'll see here in a second when we talk about Braddock's march, is that whatever, you know, whatever Washington's abilities strategically uh, and whatever his ability to win or lose a battle, there is never any question that he is personally extraordinarily brave. Uh, and that is going to earn him a lot of cachet uh, throughout the course of his entire career. So after this confrontation over Fort Necessity, obviously the Seven Years' War is about to get declared everywhere. The Ohio Valley is about to become a main theater of that war. And the British send over um, General Braddock to take control of the British regular forces, march them into the Ohio Valley, and take it from the French. Washington winds up attached to Braddock's command as a volunteer aide-de-camp. Washington has been bucking for a basically a promotion into the regular British army. You know, he served as a colonel in the Virginia militia, but within the, the British imperial sort of military command structure, the colonial regiments were definitely a step below the regular army so that a regular captain uh, could give orders to a colonial colonel. Uh, so Washington has been bucking for a spot in the regular British army, but for whatever reason, he keeps not being able to get that promotion. Um, but he does wind up attacked uh, as an aide-de-camp to Braddock, uh, and advises Braddock to move swiftly and lightly uh, through the terrain because he's just experienced what the French and Indian fighters are doing. They're able to come in, hide behind trees and shoot. They move quickly. They move lightly. So he tells Braddock, you know, if you're going to go into the Ohio Valley, do it as quickly and as lightly as you can. Braddock, on the other hand, uh, is bringing with him a very old European style of moving. And he's like, no, I'm going to bring the artillery and I'm going to bring the baggage train and every creek and stream we get to, we're going to put a bridge over it and we're going to clear roads. So the Braddock march from the seaboard into Ohio winds up being this just like extraordinarily slow, grueling uh, march. The French and Indian are, of course, just waiting for them to wind up completely exposed, which they're eventually going to do. And as they're trying to cross a river one day, uh, a vanguard of troops winds up on one side of the river, the rest of the British forces on the other. And that is when the French and Indians pounce on uh, on Braddock's column. Wholesale slaughter basically ensues. Uh, it's complete chaos. The, the French and Indian are hiding behind. Um, they're hiding behind trees. They're just picking guys off at will. There's all kinds of horrible, friendly fire incidents between the British themselves because they don't know who they're fighting, who their enemies are, who their friends are. Uh, so in just a, in a matter of hours, right, like the, the British face 
300 dead and 300 wounded of just maybe like 1,500 guys out in that vanguard. Washington, uh, through all of this, is riding around like a crazy person. Uh, he is he's, he's out there with everybody else. He manages to take four different bullets like through his clothing, none of which actually hit him. So even though the Braddock March winds up just, you know, plunging into this massacre that they do not recover from and they have to pull out, uh, Washington himself and Washington's reputation is enormously enhanced uh, by the Braddock campaign because, A, you know, he advised Braddock do the exact opposite of what Braddock actually did, and then B, his personal bravery uh, really earns him high regard amongst the colonials. Washington is able to then parlay his conduct uh, during the Braddock March uh, into a spot as colonel of the Virginia militia and also with overall command of all the Virginia colonial forces. Uh, again, you know, Washington is, is bucking for a job in the regular army, but for now, uh, he's happy to take this command. And it's the first overall command that he's really going to have over a large scale force. And his job as colonel of the Virginia militia is to protect the frontier. Um, the British have decided at this point to move the focus of the war in North America really up to Canada. Uh, and as you move on with the French and Indian War and the Seven Years' War and you're talking about North America, really you're going to be talking about the stuff that's going on uh, up in Canada. So it's Washington's job, kind of much to his chagrin, um, that the war has now moved away from Ohio to a large degree. But he is he's stationed on the frontier. Uh, he is running these militiamen, and it's really nothing but frustrating for Washington uh, because the guys who get brought up into service, you know, if they have a bad day, they just walk off the job. There's just desertion is rampant. Uh, discipline is very lax. Um, they're not super interested in taking orders. His men aren't super interested in doing the kinds of thing, whatever they don't want to do. You know, Washington says, go dig a latrine. And they're like, now nah, get to it if I feel like it. Uh, so Washington is constantly driven nuts by the militiamen under his command. Uh, and then simultaneously, you know, he's, he's a man of action. He wants to go out there. He's a young guy. He's still just in his mid twenties. Uh, he wants to go out there and, and make a further name for himself. And the higher-ups in British command have decided that he's not going to be anywhere near the main focus of the war. So he has to spend the next couple of years really just kind of sitting around trying to keep an eye on these uh, very ill-disciplined militiamen uh, and frustrated by his lack of ability to really do anything. And this has a, I think, has a permanent impact on Washington's opinion of militia forces. And as we'll see all through the American War of Independence, you know, Washington does not like the militias one bit, uh, and he's constantly trying to get the militias to give way to the Continental Army, uh, which he thinks ought to be the main focus of, uh, of the American forces. Washington does not like having to run militias, and I think he learns that uh, during his lack of campaigns during the French and Indian War. 
So the great outcome of the French and Indian War in North America is that essentially the British win and the French lose. Uh, and the British wind up taking control over all of North America, or at least, you know, everything north of Florida. When it winds up in 1763, the British really have control over North America and the French are gone. So Washington, after having spent all of these years sitting around frustrated on, on the front, by 1758, even before the war is over, uh, he's decided he's going to resign his commission, that maybe his he's never going to get the command in the regular army that he wants. Uh, maybe he actually, his career isn't going to be one of military service. So he actually winds up resigning his commission before the war ends. And he goes back to just his lands in Virginia, uh, his plantations in Virginia, uh, and decides this is him transitioning into just being a, a regular old uh, landowning aristocrat in Virginia. The main thing that happens to him at this point is that he meets and woos the widow Martha Custis. And Martha Custis actually controls an estate that is one of the largest and wealthiest in Virginia. So when Washington successfully wins the hand of the widow Custis, he is vaulted up into the upper echelons of the Virginia aristocracy. Uh, he now he has twice as many slaves as he did before. He's got, I don't know how much, two or three times as much land, if not more. Um, he is now really well known. You know, he's Colonel Washington. Uh, he is a major player now politically. He gets himself elected into the Virginia House of Burgesses, which is the, you know, the local representative assembly. And then as the war winds down and before sort of all the revolutionary stuff starts to heat up, he really spends a good, you know, five, six, seven, eight years just being another landowning, you know, civic-minded guy in Virginia. The result for the American colonies, uh, particularly after the end of the French and Indian War, is that the British are facing down monumental debt. Like par like par the Royal Ministry and Parliament is waking up every day staring at something like 120 million pounds of debt that they've run up over the course of this war. Um, and what they need to do now is to secure their possessions, their new possessions in North America. Uh, they need to figure out a way to, you know, get out from under the massive debt that they're on. Uh, and then they need to do something to sort of control how the future population migrations within the within North America uh, are going to unfold. And one of the things they decide to do is simply start trying to get the colonies to contribute a little bit uh, to the revenue of the British Empire. Uh, from the point at which the colonies start taking root back in the early 1600s, the British have never really asked much of their colonies. Um, there have not been really anything in the way of contributory revenue taxes. The colonies pay local taxes uh, to fund their own little local, local programs. But the central government back in London has never really asked them to contribute. So the royal ministry and... Uh, Parliament decide, well, this this will be 
really simple. One easy thing we can do to help defray the costs of uh, paying back our debt and now supporting uh, a bunch of new colonies in North America is to get the colonies to start contributing stuff. Uh, and we'll levy a couple of very small, innocuous taxes that won't cause any trouble at all. The first one they do is uh, implement the Sugar Act. And the Sugar Act is actually a pretty brilliant uh, piece of legislation because what it does is it actually cuts the duty on uh, the importation of foreign sugar into the colonies because there had been this duty uh, on the importation of foreign sugar that was then used to, to make molasses and rum. But it was so high that all the colonials just, um, they just skirted it. They just smuggled their way around it. So the idea for Parliament was to, was to actually cut the tax to induce uh, payment of it and to cut down on the amount of smuggling that was going on. Uh, so they think this is a pretty good idea. And then the next year in 1765, they of course passed the Stamp Act, which is a, a little nominal tax on every piece of paper, right? That, that you're gonna use legal documents, playing cards, uh, everything has to be stamped, literally stamped with, uh, with this little marker that shows that the producer of the paper has paid uh, the stamp tax. Uh, and this is all going to get then handed down to the colonies. So the British think this is all pretty innocuous. This is all things that they've asked their own subjects to do. And, you know, back in England, and they've all been paying these sorts of taxes uh, for almost now hundreds of years. But the colonies go crazy. Uh, they think this is all the thin edge of tyranny. They've never been asked to do anything before. Uh, and now suddenly Parliament is laying down these taxes on them. They don't have representation in Parliament, and one of the great freedoms that every Englishman like clings to is that if you're going to tax me, I need to have representation in the body that is doing the taxing. You know, whole, you know the English Civil Wars were in effect about trying to lay down this principle that the sovereign cannot just come take your stuff without you at least having some sort of representative say in whether or not they come take your stuff. So. The Americans don't have representation in Parliament. They don't like that. And then the other thing that goes on is that in order to secure their holdings, the British set up this line of frontier forts out in the West. This all is also deeply disconcerting to the colonists because for the entire time that they've been around the 1600s and the 1700s, the main enemy has been the French, right? The, the people that were most to be feared by the colonists was French aggression. So they didn't like this idea that now that the great enemy of our home colony is gone, the French, uh, now you're going to bring in and start setting up all of these regular troops. You're going to start having permanent standing armies out on the West. The British are trying to raise this money and they're trying to secure their possessions. But to the colonies, what they see is you're going to start levying illegal taxes and then keeping a standing army in our backyard to what? To make sure that we now become oppressed subjects. In 1765, the colonies get together for the first time uh, at what is called the Stamp Act Congress. Protests spark up across the country against the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act Congress meets. Uh, they come up with this clever little sort of formulation that it's okay for Parliament to levy taxes if it's all about regulating trade, right? Because the mercantile theory is still floating around out there. So it's okay for you to levy a tax if it means regulating imports and exports. But if you're just doing it to raise revenue, um, it's not okay for Parliament to tax us. That is that is against English freedom. Uh, we don't have representation. Uh, therefore, we don't have to pay a tax simply to help you fill your coffers. 
The Stamp Act, as it turns out, winds up raising very little revenue for Parliament because of all the protests. Uh, Parliament back in London decides, look, we want out of the Stamp Act. This is way more trouble than it's worth. So they get together in February of 1766 and say, okay, we're going to repeal the Stamp Act. But they also levy, they also uh, lay down the Declaratory Act. And the Declaratory Act says, we in fact do have the right to do whatever we want to you whenever we want. So on the one hand, you know, they're taking away the thing that is immediately causing the problem, but then trying to lay down this precedent that we're not pulling back because we can't tax you, we're just pulling back because we're going to rethink how we tax you. So this moves into the next attempt by the British to get the colonies to start kicking in some revenue. And this is the Townsend Acts. Uh, and the Townsend Acts take to heart what the colonies have just said about the difference between taxes to regulate trade and taxes to raise revenue. So the Townsend Acts lay down all these import-export duties, to which, you know, the colonies then realize, well, when when we said, you know, we don't want you to tax uh, just to just to raise revenue, what we really meant is, like, we don't want you to tax us at all. So, so we're not too happy about these taxes either. They start to get together with each other and throwing up basically non-importation taxes or non-importation packs. So this is groups of merchants getting together and saying, okay, you're going to tax us trying to bring stuff in. Well, we're just going to stop bringing stuff in and uh, we'll see what you think about that. Oh, so the British go, my God, we're just trying to get you to kick in a little tiny bit. Um, but the other thing that they've done is sent along these customs inspectors who are way more zealous than the old guys who were always willing to take bribes to let the colonies uh, smuggle stuff around their backs. By October 1768, you get troops now coming into Boston because the royal officials are worried that these protests are actually going to lead to uh, major disturbances that are going to cause all kinds of trouble for the empire. So they've actually now sent troops into Boston to sit around and get people to pay the taxes that really they ought to be paying. The Townsend Acts, specifically for Washington, are probably the point at which he himself starts to become radicalized. He doesn't like the taxes that are being laid down by Parliament. Uh, he himself has been having all kinds of problems getting goods and manufacturing tools from his factor back in uh, England. So Washington's personal response to the Townsend Acts is to, is to agree with a lot of his fellow countrymen that this is all sort of looming tyranny. Right, that they don't have a lot of say in how the colonies are being run, but they're being asked to contribute revenue. Uh, Washington personally is has always been a little disgruntled over the way that he's been treated uh, by the British and as he was trying to sort of climb up the ranks in the army. So he's, he's willing to listen when it comes time to get around to these non-importation plans. And Washington, in the House of Burgesses, is one of the guys who signs up to this thing called the Virginia Association, which is a, basically a non-importation pact. All of this gets back to Parliament and the Royal Ministry, and they go, my God, this is, uh, you know, this is all, again, becoming way more trouble than it's worth. It's costing us more to try to enforce these things than we're actually going to be getting in revenue. So up in Boston, you know, this is, this is really the true hotbed of radicalism in the colonies at this point, rather than down in Virginia, you get the Boston Massacre. The Boston Massacre is just the troops that have shown up in Boston to try to enforce all of these uh, all of these new laws. Have us have a little scuffle with some uh, 
angry and probably drunk colonials one night. Uh, it's a story that is, you know, too detailed to go into for us. But what winds up happening is uh, some British regulars wind up shooting uh, some colonials. It is a huge scandal in the colonies. Committee of Boston report of the 5th March, 1770, published by John Hancock and Sam Adams, April, 1770. The town of Boston, now legally convened at Fainal Hall, have directed us, their committee, to acquaint you of their present miserable situation, occasioned by the exorbitancy of the military power, which, in consequence of the intrigues of wicked and designing men to bring us into a state of bondage and ruin, in direct repugnance to those rights which belong to us as men and as British subjects, have long since been stationed amongst us. The soldiers, ever since the fatal day of their arrival, have treated us with an insolence which discovered in them an early prejudice against us, at being that rebellious people which our implacable enemies had maliciously represented us to be. They landed in the town with the appearance of hostility. winds up galvanizing even more opposition to what Parliament and the Royal Ministry is trying to do. And so back in London, uh, the Royal Ministry once again decides this is all becoming too much, more, more trouble than it's worth. So we are going to cancel all the Townsend duties. We are going to leave one in place because there's one thing Parliament liked doing. It was uh, giving way on everything but leaving one little precedent to say, but we can actually do this. You know, we're not giving in on the legal principle that we can't tax you. Uh, so they leave the tea duty in place and repeal everything else. Now, what this does in repealing the Townsend Acts is it actually leads to about three years of peace in the colonies. Uh, between 1770, <clears throat> 1773, all the protests, all the anger, all the radicalism, the willingness to oppose what's uh, trying to be handed down from London actually kind of goes away. Uh, and it becomes very clear to a lot of people that the sort of the conflicts of the 1760s were going to stay in the 1760s and they weren't going to move into the 1770s. But then in May of 1773, this calm is busted apart by the Tea Act. And the Tea Act is an attempt by Parliament to bail out the East India Company, uh, which has been badly mismanaged for a long time. They have this huge surplus of tea. Uh, they can't sell it anywhere. They're deeply in debt and deeply in, they're running constant deficits and deeply in debt. So to get the British East India Company sort of righted as a company, they say, okay, well, here's what you can do. You can take the extra tea that you have and you can just sell it directly to the colonies. That'll be great. The colonies will love it. They'll be able to buy tea cheaper than they would if they had to go through a middleman merchant. And then the British East India Company will be solvent again. Problem solved. But this is, again, completely resisted in the colonies. In part because, again, they see all of this as being London just making these little moves to try to set these precedents to eventually just institute mass tyranny over the colonies. So what the tea duty to the colonies means is we're going to bring in a company who's going to start selling wholesale. They're going to be able to set up their own little retail shops. 
This is going to decimate the merchant middle class of the colonies and turn the Americans into little more than producers of raw materials for British manufacturing, who we will then have to buy it back from, uh, from these corporate monopolies. So response to the Tea Act immediately reignites radicalism across the country, peaking, of course, with the Boston Tea Party in December 1773, which is throwing uh, the company's tea overboard and saying, we're not going to accept this anymore. Account of the rebellious events of the Boston Tea Party from the Boston Gazette, December 20th, 1773. On Tuesday last, the body of the people of this and all the adjacent towns and others from the distance of 20 miles assembled at the Old South Meeting House to inquire the reason of the delay in sending the ship, Dartmouth, with the East India Tea back to London. And having found that the owner had not taken the necessary steps for that purpose, they enjoined him, at his peril, to demand of the collector of the customs a clearance for the ship. They then met, and being informed by Mr. Roch that a clearance was refused him, they enjoined him immediately to enter a protest and apply to the governor for a passport. After waiting till near sunset, Mr. Roch came in and informed them that he had accordingly entered his protest and waited on the governor for a pass, but His Excellency told him he could not, consistent with his duty, grant it until his vessel was qualified. The people, finding all their efforts to preserve the property of the East India Company and return it safely to London, frustrated by the sea consignees, the collector of the customs, and the governor of the province, dissolved their meeting. But behold what followed. A number of brave and resolute men determined to do all in their power to save their country from the ruin which their enemies had plotted, in less than four hours emptied every chest of tea on board the three ships commanded by the captains Hall, Bruce, and Coffin, amounting to 342 chests into the sea. The response of the British to the Boston Tea Party is what is known in the United States as the Coercive Acts. Uh, this is the Boston is closed down. Uh, it's put under blockade. Self-government in Massachusetts is essentially abolished. Troops have to be quartered with local colonials, whether they like it or not. Um, any royal official who commits a crime in the colonies is allowed to be taken back to like London to be tried rather than by local courts. It's really, it's imposing extraordinarily punitive measures on Massachusetts just because they resisted something that most of the colonists believed was really an onerous little burden that was going to be coming in that was going to destroy the middle class of the United States. So this re-sparks radicalism across the colonies. You get in September of 1774, the First Continental Congress, right? Everybody knows the Second Continental Congress, but there was a First Continental Congress. They get together and they decide, okay, first of all, we're going to go back to our non-importation agreements. Uh, if the British are going to try to do this to us, what we're going to do is we're just going to stop buying tea. We're going to stop buying basically everything until they capitulate. But there's a, a second move 
that they then make, which is also we are going to sign up for a non-exportation agreement. We are going to stop exporting to Britain the things that they want. Uh, This is something they've never tried before. And amazingly enough, they actually do agree to it. It it takes a little bit of time and they project out, okay, well, we're not going to be able to do non-exportation probably for another year. Uh, Otherwise, like the Virginia tobacco planters would all be bankrupted because they were all buying against future tobacco sales. So they needed one full crop to get through. But by September 1775, the First Continental Congress agrees to non-exportation back to back to Britain, uh, as long as nothing happens in the meantime. (laughs) But of course, in the meantime, something will happen between the First Continental Congress meeting in September 1774 and uh, the spring of 1775. Gentlemen's Magazine, June 1775. This unhappy affair has had an amazing effect throughout every part of America. The city of New York, which was looked upon as more moderate, is now become more violent. The inhabitants have recourse to arms and surrounded the few king's troops that were spotted there for the protection of the well-afflicted in such a manner that they expected to be cut to pieces unless they deliver up their arms. And when the letters came from thence, the provincials were removing the cannon to a strong pass about 80 miles off where a camp was then forming with tents and all military requirements. Many families were at the same time retiring into the country, some returning to England, all businesses at a stand. The port sloped up and, in short, the whole city in the utmost confusion. So the Second Continental Congress was due to meet in May of 1775, uh, and they were simply going to do a little checkup and see, you know, how are we doing towards our coming non-exportation agreement. But of course, in the meantime, uh, there have been like a series of battles in Massachusetts culminating with the Battle of Lexington and Concord, uh, which traditionally is the start of the American War of Independence. So by the time that the Second Continental Congress is getting together, a war has essentially broken out. George Washington is now fully on board with this revolutionary project to oppose British tyranny. And he very famously comes to the Second Continental Congress dressed in full military uniform. Nobody can possibly miss that George Washington is not only supporting military resistance to the damned Redcoats, but also that he is probably angling to take full command of any military response that happens. And when he shows up, there's really nobody else in the country who could have possibly been unanimously given this job. I mean, everybody knows Major Washington and Colonel Washington, the good work that he's done over the course of the the French and Indian War. So he's well known. He's probably the only major military figure in the colonies. And so when he hints that he would be perfectly happy to take over command of the American military response, they give it to him. So he marches off in 1775 as the commander in chief of a non-existent continental army that will soon be raised to oppose the British. 
Gentleman's Magazine reporting George Washington's ascension to General of the Continental Army in June 1775. Amongst other transactions, the Congress have appointed George Washington Esquire of Virginia Generalissimo of the American Forces. When Oliver Cromwell was declared Generalissimo of Parliament Army in King Charles I's time, he soon made himself master of the government. When the Prince of Orange was set as the head of the Confederacy in the Netherlands on the separation of the United Provinces from Spain, he soon assumed the standholdership, which has ever since continued in his family. To obviate perhaps any similar apprehension, the Provincial Congress of New York have addressed His Excellency, hoping that whenever the important contest shall be decided by that founder with every American soul, in accommodation with the mother country, he will cheerfully resign the sacred truth and resume the character of their worthiest citizen. To this address, the General returned a full and satisfactory answer. By the time Washington actually gets up to Boston, uh, which is where the main confrontation, the first confrontation is going to take place. You've already had uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill, uh, which is a stalemate slash, you know, colonial loss in that uh, the British take the field, but they lose a whole bunch of guys trying to do it. So Washington shows up and he takes command of what is slowly becoming the siege of Boston. Um, American colonial militias from New England have all gathered. Uh, they have formed a ring around Boston where the the majority of the uh, the regular British army is located. And so Washington shows up and he takes control. Now, of course, at this point, there is no continental army per se. Uh, he is simply in control of these militias. And the militias, as we've already discussed, is something that uh, George Washington is not too keen on. Uh, he doesn't like them. They... Uh, they come and go as they please. They, the fortifications that he encounters are pathetic. So he spends most of 1775 then trying to instill some sort of discipline into these people, build better fortifications, try to say, we are actually trying to fight a war here. No, you can't just go home if you feel like it. You have to stay here and like man your post. That's important to winning a siege. But the rest of 1775 then just settles into this siege. You have the colonials are surrounding Boston. British forces are stuck in Boston. So what is ever going to break this stalemate? Now, Washington is actually fairly impetuous at this point. He is, in fact, a man of action, although he is widely you know, painted as this very calm, methodical figure who avoids taking unnecessary risks. He actually wants to charge into Boston and take it. But he gets talked out of it by the officers who are surrounding him. And what winds up breaking the stalemate is the fact that up in what is now the state of Vermont, a group of colonial fighters on their own initiative have taken Fort Ticonderoga from the British and acquired the artillery pieces that are uh, that were housed therein. So Washington sends up Colonel Knox to take these guns and try to figure out a way to get them back to Boston, uh, which Knox is able to do in a famous little march that probably deserves a little supplemental episode for you all your own. But Knox manages to get the guns from Ticonderoga back to Boston. So the guns of Ticonderoga show up in Boston in early 1776. The colonials are then able to use those guns to occupy Dorchester Heights, which is above Boston. In a fairly amazing little night operation where they're able to silently and without alerting the British occupy Dorchester Heights with these guns so that when the British wake up the next morning, suddenly they have all of these heavy guns staring down at them. The commander in charge of the British, General Howe, contemplates maybe trying to fight it out 
but a storm blows in. He says, okay, you know, Boston is no longer a tenable position, and they evacuate Boston in March of 1776. So this is great. You know, the very first thing that the colonials have done to resist the British is to actually push them out of Boston. This is an unqualified success. And really, between April 75 and April 76, things are going very well for the Americans. The rest of 1776, however, is going to be fairly disastrous for the Americans, even though it is famously the year of independence. On the military front, it's very, very bad for Washington. As Washington is coming down from Boston to New York, back in the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, the delegates have decided that the time has come to really decide what it is that this war is all about. Are we simply resisting sort of our, our mother government? Are we subjects in sort of rebellion to try to get our way? Or are we actually going for something more? Or is this a war truly of independence? Are we going to try to break away? There is a whole long, fascinating debate about whether or not they should break away. But in the end, the feeling in the Second Continental Congress is we need to declare independence to give the war a purpose and then hopefully give us some sort of standing with the other European powers who might be opposed to Britain uh, so that we can try to enlist their help. Specifically, they're thinking here about the French, that if they try to break away, that'll give them more of an argument with the French to get the French involved in helping them. Uh, with money, men, and guns. So when Washington is in New York, he gets the Declaration of Independence and he gathers up his men and he reads it aloud. So now they have this thing that they're fighting for. And this is going to be something that really does help Washington keep the Continental Army coherent through what is about to become a series of disasters that really losing means losing independence. Losing means losing a country that we are now going to try to be forging. So the Americans are always going to have this really simple thing that they're fighting for, and that's independence. This is going to be in opposition to the British, who are fighting, you know, to try to keep some people in line. Most of their guys are, you know, sort of mercenary fighters. What are we really doing here? Is this, they're doing cost-benefit analyses of whether or not it's worth it to keep fighting. The Americans are always just going to have this very simple idea, independence, and that's what we're fighting for. Pennsylvania Evening Post, 6th July, 1776. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, a declaration by the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one person to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal. And that, that they, they are, are endowed, endowed by, by their, their creator with certain unalienable un rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. 
prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislators. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial, from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, 
and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislators and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in General Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor.
So the British pull out of Boston, and what they wind up doing is heading down to New York. And Washington guesses that they're going to head down to New York, and so he too tries to get there before they do. And he manages to occupy New York and then occupy Brooklyn Heights, which overlooks New York City proper. So that when Howe pulls into town in July with 30,000 men, Washington is in place to try to defend New York City. In August, the British finally get on the move and they send over 15,000 men to Long Island to take Brooklyn Heights and try to drive the Americans out of New York City. The fortifications that the Americans have thrown up are pretty good. There are four routes up to uh, Brooklyn Heights, but the one on the very far right of the island, they leave completely undefended. And so you can imagine which pass the British decide to use. They use this pass on the very far right. They're able to completely flank the Americans and drive them back to a very little tiny foothold on the top of Long Island. Washington at this point thinks that maybe this is all actually a feint to draw his attention away from what he thinks will be the main attack on New York City. So he hesitates to send reinforcements over and it's really too late before he realizes this is actually the main battle. This is the main front that the British have decided to open up. So his guys are now trapped up on Long Island and there's really nothing he can do to relieve them. So what he has to do is retreat and he pulls off the first of what is a series over the course of his military career of amazing retreats, where over the course of a single night, silently, without alerting the British to the fact that they're leaving, uh, he manages to ferry all of his guys off of Long Island into New York City proper, so that when the British get up the next day to make their final push, they realize the Americans have abandoned the position and that they are now back in New York City. With his guys regrouped, although severely demoralized, Washington then gets ready to defend New York City with all of his might, but is told by the Second Continental Congress, okay, you don't actually have to defend New York City. Washington probably says, okay, good. And then he starts pulling out. So after Washington has been pushed out of New York City, after he's withdrawn his troops, he races north with the British on his heels, with Howe on his heels. They make a little bit of a stand at White Plains uh, in October of 1776, which turns out to be, you know, the Continentals and the militias sort of hold their own, and they almost make a good stand of it, but they are eventually pushed off the field, and so the Americans are forced into retreat again. And what follows then is a couple of months of Washington being traced by Cornwallis, the guy who he'll eventually defeat at Yorktown, but Cornwallis is nipping at his heels and Washington crosses over into New Jersey and then he's racing south through New Jersey with Cornwallis hot on his heels, like literally like one day behind him. And Washington really doesn't get any breathing space until he manages to cross the Delaware River. And then he, what he does is he sends his guys up and down the Delaware River to wrap up uh, every boat, every rowboat they can find to make sure that the British can't cross the river. And really, if Washington had not been able to cross the Delaware right then, the war could have been over. Uh, if he had been trapped, that really would have been the end of it if Washington had been captured. But Washington gets away, and the big thing that he's facing right now is that everybody who signed up for the Continental Army and a lot of these militiamen, their enlistments are coming due at the end of the year. So really, it's been nothing but bad news for all of 1776. All of his troops are demoralized. And there's a really big question about whether or not his army is just going to disappear then in the winter of 76, 77. So Washington decides that what he needs to do is score some kind of victory. He needs some good news for the war effort to keep his army intact. So he targets a Hessian garrison 
they're holding down Trenton, New Jersey. So they, they're manning the frontier as winter is setting in. And Washington says, okay, if before the end of the year, if I can attack these Hessians at Trenton and win, maybe we can keep this thing going. So he invents a rather convoluted plan that involves like four different columns moving at different times, crossing this icy river in the middle of the night. Washington had a tendency to draw up very complicated plans that once you actually try to put them in motion, wind up causing you a lot of trouble. But at Trenton, though half the plan does fall apart, the other half does manage to succeed. And he gets two columns across the Delaware River and then up at Trenton, and they manage to take the Hessians uh, unaware. There's a, a myth that these Hessians, this was basically, this is New Year's Eve, so he's getting this done right under the wire. There's a myth that the Hessians were drunk at Trenton and the Hessians were not drunk although it was very stormy outside, it was very snowy, so they weren't necessarily expecting an attack. And on New Year's Day, 1777, Washington manages to surprise the Hessians, bombard them with artillery, take them all prisoner, and he loses almost nobody. So this is, this is a great victory for Washington. It's a small thing, but it's a huge propaganda boon for the cause. And over the next couple of days, he manages to actually plunge up towards Princeton, they take, a, they take a garrison at Princeton. Uh, Cornwallis has now been sent out again to try to stop Washington. Washington races around, avoids Cornwallis again. And then having scored a couple of these victories, Washington then does retire for the winter and says, okay, I've managed to do one good thing in this year. We can hole up for the winter now and hopefully keep the army together. And he does, in fact, manage to keep some of the guys from running away on him. And over the course of that winter, they're bolstered by a strong recruitment effort that by the time that the campaign season of 1777 gets started in June, you know, the Continental Army is still in the field, which is a pretty amazing thing considering how many setbacks they were dealt over 1776. So the campaign season of 1777 gets started in June when General Howe actually pulls his troops out of New York City and sails away just sort of over the horizon. And Washington and the rest of his officers really have no way of knowing where it is that Howe is going. They are aware that at the same time, uh, another British general, John Burgoyne, has started an expedition that's coming down from Canada. And so there's some concern that Howe is going to go link up with Burgoyne and their combined efforts will disconnect New England from the rest of the colonies and hopefully split, split the colonies and win the war. But what Howe is actually up to is not going to meet with Burgoyne. He's going to make a play at Philadelphia, which is the, the rebel capital. And he figures if he can catch Philadelphia, that is going to be a huge propaganda blow for him. So he winds up putting in down in the Chesapeake Bay. And so Washington has to rush down from New York to try to block Howe's advance on Philadelphia. So all of this plays out over the summer of 1777, uh, culminating in the autumn of 1777, when Washington... Uh, sets up a line across Brandywine Creek to attempt to block Howe's advance towards Philadelphia. Unfortunately, as had happened at Long Island, there was a ford across Brandywine Creek that the Americans left undefended. They, I don't know if Washington simply thought it was too far away for Howe to actually use, but Howe comes sweeping up towards the American right, which is undefended, plunges into the American line, the Americans are left scrambling. They are left uh, in chaos. There's heavy fighting. They're taking heavy casualties. And after Brandywine, unlike many of Washington's other famous retreats, which are usually done in good order, the retreat after Brandywine is total chaos. His army sort of dissipates for a little while. But amazingly enough, 
he is able to regather them. And despite getting trounced at Brandywine, Washington, the Continentals, and the American militia are still standing between the British regulars and Philadelphia. Howe, however, manages to do some slick maneuvering, tricks Washington into thinking he's going to go one way, and then he doubles back. And the next thing you know, the British are marching into Philadelphia. The Second Continental Congress uh, has to hightail it to avoid being captured. And, you know, just like that, the American capital, this rebel capital, has been taken. But, unfortunately for Howe, the Americans don't really play by the traditional rules of war, and they decide that just because you've taken our capital, that doesn't mean the war is over. So instead... Washington sits just outside of Philadelphia and identifies a large garrison of British troops at Germantown. He would actually have a numerical advantage over at that point. And so they decide in October 1777, Washington decides to attack that contingent at Germantown. And again, as with Trenton, Washington's battle plan is very complicated. It's again, there's, I think, four different columns that are marching out at different times in different directions. They all need to synchronize their movements and link up all at the same time. And this is happening in the middle of the night. And this is happening on a very foggy day. So despite all this, there are enough guys in position that in October 1777, when they come into Germantown and the battle begins, there's a very real possibility that at this moment, Washington can capture Germantown and defeat the British in a fairly substantial way. But because of the fog and because of the confusion and because they get bogged down accidentally laying siege to a house that they really should not have been laying siege to, the the Americans get pushed out of Germantown and this results in a loss for the Americans. They're pushed out. They do not capture Germantown. So we're now two years or so into the war since Washington has taken over. And the only real victory he can point to is Trenton. Now, fortunately for the American cause, at that same time, the expeditionary force led by Burgoyne that's coming down from Canada has run into utter disaster. And they are beaten by the American general Horatio Gates at Saratoga. This is a huge propaganda victory for the Americans. It is widely pointed to as the turning point in the American War of Independence, primarily because it has demonstrated to the French that the Americans are actually a force to be reckoned with, uh, that they are actually in this thing to win it. Uh, They are professional enough to defeat a regular British army. And despite Washington's loss at Germantown, the battle plan and the conduct of his men was professional enough that when Benjamin Franklin was trying to sell the French on on aiding the Americans, that he was able to point not just to the victory at Saratoga, but also to, to Washington's campaign down in Germantown as proof that the Americans really were now a professional army, that if the French gave them money and men and material, that it wouldn't just be flushing it down the toilet. So Washington, though, has been stung again with victory. And he has to retire over the winter of 1777-1778 to Valley Forge. And this is the very famous, terrible winter at Valley Forge. It's deadly cold. His troops are sleeping on bare ground. They eat these things called fire cake all winter, which is just flour and water. I am Isaac Potts. I have witnessed George Washington praying for divine guidance at Valley Forge in 1777. I heard a plaintive sound as of a man at prayer. I tied my horse to a sapling and went quietly into the woods, and to my astonishment, I saw the great George Washington on his knees alone, with his sword on one side and his cocked hat on the other. 
He was at prayer to the God of the armies, beseeching to interpose with his divine aid as it was his crisis in the cause of the country, of humanity, and of the world. Such a prayer I had never heard from the lips of man. I left him alone praying. I went home and told my wife. I saw a sight and heard today what I never saw or heard before, and just related to her what I had seen and heard and observed. We never thought a man could be a soldier and a Christian, but if there is one in the world, it is Washington. She also was astonished. We thought it was the cause of God, and America could prevail. It's a really, really rough time for Washington and the Continental Army. But through the winter, he also manages to pick up a very famous and colorful Prussian named Baron von Steuben, who has more or less lied his way into the Continental Army with the help of Ben Franklin. He's, he claimed to be an aide-de-camp to King Frederick of Prussia, and which was never actually the case. But when von Steuben shows up, Washington recognizes his worth, and von Steuben spends the winter drilling the Continental Army and turning them into... A, a true a true professional army, which they had never been before. And so when the army comes out of Valley Forge, that they do manage to survive the winter in June of 1778, Washington has this really this sort of new toy to go play with. His troops are better drilled and better disciplined than ever, and he's pretty excited about what he's going to be able to do with them, which is why it's so ironic that in June of 1777, this is really when Washington stops being a part of the American War of Independence. So on the British side of this in Philadelphia, they've occupied Philadelphia through the winter, and Howe has been unable to beat the Americans, and people back home are starting to talk about his ability to actually win the war. So he is recalled, and they replace him with Henry Clinton, and Henry Clinton decides that holding Philadelphia is pointless, and what he wants to do is withdraw back to New York City and hold that, which is a far more defensible position, especially if the French are going to get in on this. And so if there's a French fleet that's bearing down, it'll be easier to defend New York than Philadelphia. So Clinton, uh, in June of 78, says, I'm going to head back to New York City. And Washington says, great, I am going to pounce on this slow-moving baggage train of Clinton's basically entire command is now marching towards New York City. And Washington's head after him with his new toy, with his new disciplined army. And in June 78, so the Americans head out after, after Clinton, and they track him down at a, at a site called Monmouth Courthouse. And Washington's troops managed to land on the back of the baggage train, the rear guard of Clinton's baggage train. But unfortunately, the guy that Washington has put in charge of his vanguard, the, the, the lead forces that are attacking the British, a guy named Charles Lee, well, Lee's heart was never in this fight, and he didn't want to be attacking Clinton's troops. So at the first sign of trouble, Lee turns around and retreats. That retreat runs smack dab into the rest of the Americans who are trying to move forward. This causes all kinds of mayhem. And for the first time, and possibly only time in the whole history of his public life, George Washington loses his temper and absolutely cusses out Charles Lee in a display of fury that none of Washington's friends or associates had really ever seen before. Washington was so, 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 so mad because he really thought he had the opportunity to capture Clinton the way that Horatio Gates had captured Burgoyne up at Saratoga. The Battle of Monmouth then descends into just a straight frontal assault battle between Washington and Cornwallis, 
And what's really impressive about it is though Cornwallis essentially succeeds at stopping the Americans from capturing the rest of, of the British baggage train, the Americans take the full brunt of a regular army assault and stand their ground. They don't run off. They don't flinch. They just keep taking it and taking it. So despite this being technically a loss for the Americans, it's a really excellent display of Washington's new army, which is why, ironically, when Washington chases Clinton up and Clinton does manage to get into New York City and Washington then lays in to what is going to become a new siege of New York City, this is really the end of Washington's involvement in the American War of Independence, which, again, is not going to technically end for another three years, but Washington's main role in the war is now over. And this is because the British have decided that the battles in New England and the middle colonies have not been going well at all, and they need an entirely new strategy. And this entirely new strategy is to send the bulk of the British army south uh, into Georgia and into the Carolinas, where there is more loyalist sympathy than there is up in the north, and that then state by state they'll just sort of move their way north, and by the time that they re-get to New York and New England, that they'll have most of the colonies now under wraps. So Washington essentially then spends the next two to three years sitting outside of New York City while the war continues on in the South. And the reason why Washington doesn't march down South to take command of the forces himself is that Washington is convinced that the war will ultimately be won when the Americans take New York City. This has been the main base of the, of the British military since they captured it in 1776. And Washington is convinced that New York City will be the site of the final showdown. So he stays outside of New York for years and years and years, again, being frustrated by his own inability to do anything, um, but still not wanting to give up on the siege of New York City. Come, you know, 1781, he's been sitting there for a while. The French are now in the war, but they've been unable to link up and have a really good combined effort against the British. The French are around, their navy has been patrolling up and down the coast and down into the Caribbean, but they've never really been able to work well together. There was an attempt to take Newport that really fell apart, in part due to the inability of the French and Americans to work together. Then the French send over this expeditionary force under the command of General Rochambeau, but they get pinned down in Newport, Rhode Island, and are unable to link up with the Continental forces. And it's not until a huge storm blows, like literally blows the British Navy away, that that French force under Rochambeau is able to leave and link up with Washington. Now, sort of what has come out of the entire campaign in the South is that that change in focus, while it was good in theory, turned out to be really bad in practice. The, the British had nothing but troubles trying to take down the Southern colonies. And by 1781, Lord Cornwallis, who's in charge of the forces down in the South now, has decided to bag it. He moves into Virginia, and he's got this whole new plan that he's going to use Virginia as a pivot point to just try to sweep his way left and right and maybe hopefully get something done. But what this winds up with is him occupying and fortifying a position at Yorktown, Virginia, which is going to leave him exposed to a combined assault by the Americans, the French army, and then the French navy. Now, Washington is still convinced that New York City is going to be the center of the action, and so it takes a while to convince him that Cornwallis is a sitting duck down there in Yorktown, and there's, um, there's some pretty hilarious maneuvering that Rochambeau is up to where he's trying to tell Washington, oh, yes, 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 the, the French Navy will be coming up and, and yeah, we'll capture New York City. 
Meanwhile, he's turning around and telling his French superiors, like, no, Cornwallis is a sitting duck at Yorktown. We need to target then. I'll convince Washington to get down there. So Rochambeau is running this <laughs> these side talks with his superiors. He does, however, manage to finally convince Washington that Yorktown is the thing. And when, when Washington takes a look at the position and realizes how exposed Cornwallis is, he goes, okay, yeah, let's go do it. And from that point on, he runs one of the all-time great marches in American history and possibly even just in generally in military history. They gather up all of their men who are outside of New York City. They march 450 miles in three weeks, racing against the clock, because if Clinton, who is holed up in New York City, realizes that the entire enemy army has now marched away down to Virginia, he can ferry troops down by sea to Yorktown reinforce Cornwallis and hopefully block the, the rebel advance. But Washington logistically succeeds in getting his guys that far that fast, and they show up outside of Yorktown and begin the siege of Yorktown. Now, Washington knows that he himself is not a master of siege, uh, so he, he essentially turns over the, the actual running of the battle to the French engineers. And they do, they slowly but surely hem Cornwallis in. They pound him with artillery. There's really not a lot that Cornwallis can do about it. He makes one brief stab to try to get away, but it doesn't work. And then, and on October the 19th, 1781, Cornwallis gives up. He comes over and says, we're done. We can't win this battle. This capturing of Cornwallis's army at Yorktown does not necessarily end the ability of the British to prosecute the war. They still had an army up in New York City. They still had men and guns and money that they could have sent over to keep running the war. But what Yorktown really does is destroy the desire of the British to continue fighting the war. There have already been complaints that this has been going on for too long and it is costing too much money and it's really not worth it. So the capture of one of their whole armies over there in Virginia, when word of that gets back, the ministry just says, we're done. You know, we can't do this anymore. Nobody's going to support us. King George III actually wants to keep it going, but his prime minister, Lord North, who resigns as a result of all this, says basically, if anybody proposes continuing the war in America, they are an enemy of the British Empire. And so Yorktown ends the American War of Independence. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Triumphant report of the surrender of General Cornwallis to General Washington's forces on 17th October, 1781. 24th October, 1781. Be it remembered that on 17th October, 1781, Lieutenant General Charles Earl Cornwallis, with over 5,000 British troops, surrendered themselves prisoners of war to His Excellency General George Washington, Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Forces of France and America. Laos Dale. Praise be to God. being the 18th century, ending the war doesn't just mean that the war is over and then a treaty gets signed two weeks later and suddenly America is this independent country. You got to send ambassadors over to Europe to negotiate terms. So it's actually going to be years before the final Treaty of Paris gets signed, which finally does get signed in 1783, the British acknowledging finally American independence. And there are a number of stipulations that are written in there actually, though, about sort of the British withdrawing from their Western frontier forts, their stuff about debt payment, debt collection that needs to be worked out. And although the British are now acknowledging American independence, the, the general British attitude is, yeah, okay, I mean, we'll say that we'll do it, but let's see you try to actually make us do it. And the Americans are going to have a very difficult time actually dislodging the British from those Western forts. And that's something that's not going to happen until Washington is president almost a decade later. So while these negotiations are going on, there's still some possibility that the war might start back up. As I said, like, Yorktown doesn't have to end the war, and just because there is a treaty being negotiated, that doesn't mean the war is going to end. So Washington has to stay as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army through 1782 through 1783. One of the problems that Washington was dealing with and had been dealing with was a complete inability on the part of the Continental Congress to keep his men well paid for the Congress to keep the promises that they had been making to all the officers and all the men who have been fighting all of these years. They had been making all kinds of promises over the years to keep these guys in service. And now, basically, the bill is coming due, 
And the Congress is saying, well, we don't really have the money. Uh, we really don't have the land. We really don't have the means to, to give you what we said we were going to give you. And this creates a lot of bad feelings, as you can imagine, in the American officer corps. There's also a push within some of the congressmen in the Second Continental Congress. They want to create a stronger national government. Uh, and this is going to be a theme of the next decade of American history, of this pull between the Americans who wanted to have a very decentralized form of government where local rule and local authority was paramount, and then those who wanted to forge a strong national union. So there's a conspiracy between sort of nationalist-inclined congressmen and then disgruntled officers in the, uh, the Continental Army to force the Second Continental Congress to impose a 5% duty on imports that is going to fund the repayment of all the promises that they have made to the officer corps. And as a threat, they're going to say, if you don't do this, then the army is going to march and seize control of the Continental Congress. This is very similar to an entire sequence of events that happened at the end of the English Civil Wars. This is when Cromwell comes to power, essentially, where the new model army is angry at what Parliament has been doing, and they decide to march, seize London, and put Parliament under the army's authority. And this was something that was fairly well known to anybody who was literate in English history, as, for example, George Washington really was. One of the few things Washington was really interested in was English history. So he knew all about this. So in March of 1783, it's called the Newburgh Conspiracy, because that's the town that they were all based in. The officers are getting together and they're preparing to march on the Second Continental Congress. And Washington gathers them together and he steps forward. And instead of saying, I will lead you and your, your grievances are just, he says, your, your grievances are just, but we can't turn the army against the civilian politicians. That is a road that will take us to blood, that will take us to more bloodshed. And in a very dramatic moment, he has a letter that he wants to read out to his officers, and he has to pull out a pair of eyeglasses to read this letter to his men. And the appearance of these eyeglasses signals this vulnerability that Washington has never shown to his troops before. And he says, you know, I'm sorry, but I have gone blind as well as gray in service to my country. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles. For it seems I have not just grown gray, but nearly blind in the service of my country. If my conduct heretofore has not evinced to you that I have been a faithful friend to the army, my declaration of it at this time would be equally unavailing and improper. But as I was among the first to embark on the cause of our common country, and I have never left your side one moment but when called from you on public duty, as I have been the constant companion and witness of your distresses, and not among the last to feel and acknowledge your merits, as I have ever regarded my own military reputation as inseparably connected with that of the army. As my heart expanded with joy when I have heard its praises and my indignation arisen 
when the mouth of detraction has opened against it. It can scarcely be supposed at this last stage of the war that I am indifferent to your interests. But how are they to be addressed? I know that Congress is slow, but it is my opinion that Congress is an honorable body, and given time it will do complete justice to your merits and your sufferings. So let me entreat you, gentlemen, not to take any measures which will lessen the dignity and sully the glory you have maintained. Now is the time to show one more proof of your patriotism, to rise above your sufferings, and by witnessing the dignity of your conduct, the world will speak of the glorious example you have established for all mankind. This utterly takes the wind out of the sails of the conspiracy. The guys look around at each other sheepishly. You know, here is their great leader, their great general, the guy who has sacrificed more and given more than any of them to this cause. And he is not going to lead them down this road. The Newburgh conspiracy fizzles out at that moment. And the American Revolution does not follow the course of the English Civil Wars. And Washington does not become a military dictator that I'm sure more than a few guys in his ranks before he appeared. One, that was the road they wanted him to take. So when the Treaty of Paris finally does get signed, and word finally does come back that the war is over. The next question is, what is Washington going to do? Because despite the fact that he has undercut the Newburgh conspiracy and signaled that he doesn't want to be any kind of military dictator, he's still in charge of the army. He's still the most popular and most famous man in the American colonies, now the United States of America. So what is he gonna do? And Washington does what Washington had wanted to do from the very beginning of the war, and that was resign as soon as the war was won. Washington had no further designs on a public career. He, for his entire life, had been a very ambitious man. He had wanted to be a great man, a great man of history. But his idea was that he was always going to do it through military service. And now that he has won this war, he hopefully has nothing left to give to the country and that they will let him retire to his plantation down at Mount Vernon, live a life of quiet repose, you know, basking in the adulation of his countrymen, but not really needing to do anything more. And there's the very famous quote where George III, King George III, is having his portrait painted by an American artist, and George III asks the American, you know, what is Washington going to do now that Washington has won the war? And the artist says, well, I hear he's going to retire to his farm. And George III says, well, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man in history. And that's what Washington does. It's, everybody is very taken aback. And this is where the myth of Washington as the American Cincinnatus really takes root. The man who is called from his plow to defend his country, and then when the crisis has passed, he is going to return to his plow. Of course, history has other ideas for George Washington. 
Cincinnatus being a great mythological figure in Roman history uh, in the early days of the Republic where Rome was threatened by foreign enemies and Cincinnatus is out working in his field and they come to him and they say, we will give you full and absolute power if you can turn around and defeat this enemy. Cincinnatus lays down his plow, takes absolute power, goes, defeats the enemy, and then at that moment, you know, he could pretty much do whatever he wanted and instead he lays down his sword picks back up his uh, his plow and goes back to work on the farm, thus saving the Republic and establishing the precedent that the Republic is more important than any one single man. Washington then does retire to Mount Vernon, hopefully permanently, but um, the government that has been put in place during the war years and then what is now persisting is under a document that is called the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation are written to be a very decentralized form of government. There's actually very little power that the national government has, most especially being they do not have the power to tax. They can only request that states give money to support this or that national initiative. And so the ability of the national government to survive now as an independent nation is really undercut by their inability to fund anything that they want to do. There are a number of other different problems that are starting to crop up. Up in Massachusetts, there is an entire rebellion amongst disgruntled ex-continental soldiers who are feeling the effects of a post-war depression and an inability to get money. Congress having never paid any of the uh, any of the money that they had been promised for all their years in service. The national government can't actually come up with any of the money because they don't have the power to tax. So up in Massachusetts, there is Shays Rebellion, which is a rebellion of former Continental soldiers against debt collectors who are coming around to seize their stuff. So amongst the intellectuals, amongst former officers of the Continental Army, there's a lot of talk about the Articles of Confederation needing to be revised. We need to do something to make it stronger, or this entire project of an independent United States is probably going to fall apart. But is a movement to reform the Articles of Confederation going to have any legitimacy? Is anybody actually going to listen to a bunch of guys if they decide to, say, get together in Philadelphia of 1787 and make recommendations to alter the Articles of Confederation? They know that there's one way for this convention to get some legitimacy, and that is for George Washington to be a part of it. Washington is essentially synonymous with the United States of America at this point, and so for him to be there will give the project legitimacy. And Washington himself is very sympathetic to the idea of a strong national government. His years of wartime service have convinced him not only that the colonies need to be fused together into a single unit so they can pursue a common dream, but also that that institution needs to have the power to raise the money that it needs to do the things that it wants to do. Washington had been bedeviled his entire career by an inability to raise money. So Washington is sympathetic to the project and he says, yes, I will go to the Constitutional Convention. And when he gets there, he is elected president of the Constitutional Convention. And so when the Constitutional Convention produces not revisions to the Articles of Confederation, but it turns out that they have spent the summer of 1787 completely writing a new document that is the Constitution of the United States, instead of it landing with a thud and everybody saying, well, who cares about that? It is presented under the auspices of George Washington, and so everybody has to sort of take it seriously. The fight over the Constitution is the first great political battle 
in the United States. Uh, it is waged between guys who are called the Federalists, these are people who are in favor of the Constitution and a strong national government, and guys who get painted as the Anti-Federalists. These guys want the states themselves to be the dominant power in the new country, rather than giving it to a central government, because they believe that they've just fought this entire war against centralized tyranny, and so to now set up a centralized power structure is actually the exact opposite of what the war had been about. But again, Washington is in many ways the embodiment of that war. And so Washington saying, no, I support the Constitution and I want the Constitution to go into effect, that really helps to sell the case for the Constitution. And after some fairly acrimonious fighting, the Constitution does in fact get ratified by the necessary nine of the 13 states uh, and takes effect. And there is absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind that George Washington is going to be elected the first president of the United States. And in many ways, the fact that everybody knew that George Washington was going to be the first president of the United States, again, helps sell the notion of the Constitution, because one of the things that the Constitution had that the Articles of Confederation did not have was a strong executive branch and a strong executive leader. So the colonists had all been fearful of strong executive power, but the fact that it was going to be vested first in George Washington really helped temper a lot of those fears because if anybody has demonstrated his lack of desire to seize absolute power, it was George Washington. We're talking about the guy who had the opportunity already to seize absolute power and he had taken a pass on it. So in 1788, in the first presidential election, Washington is unanimously elected president. The Boston newspaper, the Massachusetts Sentinel, 11th April, 1789. At 12 o'clock, the Senate gave notice to the House that they had assembled, that they had chosen a president to open and count the votes for president and vice president. About half past one, the House attended in the Senate chamber and the votes were counted. A list whereof is enclosed. The House agreed that the Senate should nominate some person to notify the President and Vice President of their election. Charles Thompson was appointed to notify General Washington, and Sylvanus Bourne of Roxbury to notify Dr. Adams. Sir, the representatives of the people of the United States present their congratulations on the event by which your fellow citizens have attested the preeminence of your merit. You have long held the first place in their esteem. You have often received tokens of their affection. You now possess the only proof that remained of their gratitude for your services, of their reverence for your wisdom, and of their confidence in your virtues. You enjoy the highest, because the truest, honor of being the first magistrate by the unanimous choice of the freest people on the face of the earth. And in March of 1789, he is sworn in. General, if you will please place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. Repeat after me. I, George Washington, do solemnly swear. I, George Washington, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Faithfully execute the office of the United States. And will 
To the best of my ability. To the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help me, God. It is done. God bless George Washington, President of the United States. The electoral process for the presidency is, and remains, a somewhat convoluted mechanism of votes being taken out in the states and then those votes being handed off to individual electors who would then meet as a body and carry the wishes of their state forward. So there were actually, in these first rounds of presidential elections, it doesn't take long for them to amend the Constitution you would vote for two people and the top vote getter would be the president and the second top vote getter would be the vice president. So of the 69 electoral votes in the first election, Washington gets every single one of them. And then coming in second place is John Adams with a distant, you know, he's named on 30 of the ballots. This will, of course, cause huge problems for the United States down the road when two guys who are bitter enemies wind up coming in first and second, as will happen, and the president and the vice president actually hate each other. When Washington comes into power, becomes the president, the Constitution spells out a lot of specifics about what the national government can and cannot do, but there is a lot that is really left unsaid, and there is a lot that is very vague, and George Washington knows that every single thing that he does in this first term is going to set a precedent for all future presidents. And this is really his great contribution to the American political system and American political history, is setting up the scope, the purview, the reach of the executive within this new Republican system. Is the executive going to wind up being subservient to the Congress? Is Congress going to wind up being subservient to some super executive power? Washington is extraordinarily concerned about not appearing to be aiming at monarchy. So everything that he does is aimed at projecting a very Republican image of the president. So he wants to be styled simply Mr. President. So rather than being styled his Lord and High Excellency, Washington wants to be simply Mr. President. He wants to meet with his people. He wants to converse with them. He does not want to be some object of adoration far and above common subjects. You know, he, he wants to be a citizen ruler. But at the same time, as he's super concerned about not wanting to be seen as this, as this king, he also wants the executive branch to have an independent say in how the government is run. He does not want the presidency to be reduced to a mere executor of Congress's demands. So in the first years of his presidency, there are moves by the House of Representatives, by the Senate, to horn in on what Washington believes is the executive purview, things like foreign policy. So Washington starts running foreign policy really on his own initiative. The Senate attempts to get in on it. 
But Washington shuts them out and says, no, the presidency is going to be the main point person or point man on foreign policy. And that remains to this day that the American president basically runs foreign policy with some consent being provided by the Senate over, you know, the final wording of treaties. But for the most part, the president is the face of American foreign policy. And that's something that Washington really establishes on his own initiative. He also sets up the cabinet form of government, which, you know, nothing in the Constitution says anything about having various department heads who are in charge of this or that. That's something that Washington sets up all on his own. And he appoints into his cabinet, you know, some of the greatest cabinet ministers in American history. Alexander Hamilton is running the Treasury Department. Thomas Jefferson is the Secretary of State. Henry Knox is uh, is the Secretary of War. And these guys are all, they're towering intellects. They are towering men of, uh, of ability. But it becomes very clear, very quickly, that Hamilton and Jefferson hate each other's living guts, right? Everything that Hamilton wants, Jefferson hates. Everything that Jefferson wants, Hamilton hates. Washington, however, wants to keep these guys together in his cabinet, both providing him with sort of dueling versions of where the country needs to be going. And he listens to both sides. But it does become clear early on that he is sympathetic to Hamilton, because Hamilton's vision is more in line with Washington's vision, which is a strong national government, a strong executive branch, the states being subservient to the federal government. Jefferson, on the other hand, has these idealistic visions of small, freeholding, liberty-loving farmers. The less government, the better. The freer a man is, the less a government can rule. So the early years of Washington's presidency is really defined by this schism between Hamilton and Jefferson, where Hamilton wants, for example, the federal government to assume the debt of that the states had run up during the war. Because what Hamilton wants is for the national government to be able to borrow money, right, against the tax revenue that they will be able to generate. They want to become, Hamilton wants the United States to become credit worthy on the world stage. And without greater, without enhancing the power of the national government, that project is never going to be pulled off. Jefferson, on the other hand, hates every last bit of this. He doesn't like central banks. Uh, he doesn't want the federal government to have a huge taxing power. So they get into it with each other, Hamilton and Jefferson, but they really keep it away from George Washington. So Washington is actually unaware for a little while just how deep the animosity is between Hamilton and Jefferson. And it gets so bad, in fact, that Jefferson winds up setting up a shadow campaign of anonymous essayists and anonymous letter writers to start attacking Washington's administration, you know, attacking Hamilton, but really directed at George Washington. And this is all going on behind George Washington's back. Washington, however, does support ultimately all of Hamilton's programs. And so this is another great precedent that Washington is setting. He is not going to be a figurehead uh, over the United States. The, the federal government is going to be an active player in running the country. They're not just going to defer to the states. This is something Washington helps set up in his first term. So Washington's first term 
is relatively successful. There was always a great deal of concern that the project would not come off. You know, history has shown us that the American War of Independence did produce a stable United States of America that then went on to take its place in the world stage. But in the early 1790s, there was no reason to assume that the federal government was actually going to survive. So Washington was willing to be the first president of the United States because he had this duty to the country and he wanted to help the country stay together. But as 1790 gives way to 1791, gives way to 1792, his dream of only serving a single term and going back to Mount Vernon looks like more and more it cannot possibly happen. Everybody is begging Washington to stay in office. As we've said, the animosity between Hamilton and Jefferson Jefferson and Hamilton disagreed over just about everything, but there was one thing that they absolutely agreed on, and that was that Washington needed to serve a second term. The government had not, in fact, solidified enough to survive. Both of them were afraid that if Washington left, that the other guy, in Hamilton's case Jefferson, in Jefferson's case Hamilton, would ruin the country. They would take it down a path that would destroy what they were all trying to do. And they both agreed that the only man who could hold it together was George Washington. So despite his longing to return to Mount Vernon, which I think was quite genuine at this point, I don't think that was him just putting on airs, Washington does agree and is reelected again unanimously president of the United States in 1792. So in these early days of the United States of America, there are no political parties in the way that everybody understands political parties today. And in fact, unanimously in their letters and in their journals and in their diaries, all of the founding fathers believed that political parties as such were the enemy of democracy. They weren't a way to mobilize democratic forces to help get your preferred policy enacted. They were considered to be petty factions of selfish private interests who are then going to try to hijack democracy and run it for their own benefit. So nobody wants to be a part of a political party. Everybody is supposed to be this disinterested individual statesman who considers the merits of the case and then makes an enlightened decision. These guys are all you know, of the era of enlightenment. They're all steeped in Roman history. This is the way an individual statesman is supposed to act. But this is never going to work because people are always going to get together with other people that they agree with to try to work together to get things done. This is fairly basic to human nature. And so though, for example, Thomas Jefferson roundly abuses the notion of political parties, behind the scenes, he and James Madison are essentially setting up the first formal political party in U.S. history. What becomes known eventually as the Democratic Republicans, or at that time, the Jeffersonian Republicans. Anybody who's involved in this project will deny uh, vehemently that they are a part of a party, but they all are working together towards a common goal of a more decentralized vision of the United States of America. On the other side, the guys surrounding Hamilton and working with Hamilton become known as the Federalists, taking their name, obviously, from the guys who were pro the U.S. Constitution. These guys wanted a stronger, more vigorous national government, and again, would have denied vehemently that they were actually a part of a political party. But this split between Hamilton and Jefferson really does set the groundwork for the first political parties in American history. Through Washington's first term, domestic affairs tended to dominate the scene. 
They were trying to make a go of it. As an independent country, Britain had said, okay, yes, you can be independent. But of course, what's going on in Europe in 1789, 1790, 1791 is the French Revolution. The French Revolution has broken out. And one of the great divides in American domestic politics between the Federalists and Jeffersonian Republicans is whether or not you support the French Revolution. Jefferson and his guys love the French Revolution. They think that this is a great extension of the battle that was started at Lexington and Concord, and it is now being carried to the old monarchies of Europe, whereas Hamilton and the Federalists have a tendency to side with the British and look at what the French are doing, uh, and they seem to be getting out this thing called the guillotine, and that doesn't look like it's going to be good for anybody. So they're opposed to the French Revolution, and they don't, they don't like it one bit. Then in 1792, as Washington is contemplating being thrust back into the presidency, the French cut off the head of King Louis XVI. So this is all now ratcheted up quite a bit, and Britain declares war on France. And basically at this point, all of Europe is at war with everybody else. Everybody's at war with France. So what is America going to do about this? There's a lot of pressure from Jefferson and his people for the United States of America to side with France against all her enemies, right? Not only is the French Revolution a continuation of the American Revolution, but obviously the American War of Independence would never have been won without the French getting involved. And they believed that they owed it to the French, the United States owed it to the French to support them now in their time of need. On the other hand, Washington himself did not believe that the United States of America at this point should get into anything that was going on in Europe. He believed that getting the United States sucked into European power politics, which is an incredibly dangerous game full of long knives and shifting alliances and interests and betrayals, he figured if the United States tried to get into this game, they would just be utterly destroyed. So in Jefferson's mind, what Washington does now is turn his back on the French. In Washington's mind, what he's doing is securing the independence and survival of the United States. And so he issues in 1793 the Neutrality Proclamation. This is going to set a great precedent for American foreign policy really through into the 1900s for, for at least a century, really until Theodore Roosevelt comes along, that America is going to stay neutral. America is going to engage in commercial treaties with the European powers, but they don't want to get in political treaties. They don't want to be sucked into this war or that war. So Washington issues the Neutrality Proclamation in 1793. The United States of America is going to stay out of the French Revolutionary Wars. This turns out to be quite a bit harder to uh, impose in practice than in theory, because first of all, the French are very angry that the Americans are not going to help them out. And then the British, who essentially are helped by the United States of America's neutrality, blockade France. And as American merchants try to trade with France, try to take food to France and sell it to engage in neutral commercial activities, the British aren't going to let this happen. They're not going to let anything that's going to help the French win a war get into France. They are running a blockade of France and going so far as to seize American ships and seize American sailors and press them into service. This creates a huge problem for Washington as he's being pressed by both sides. The Federalists want him to get more into the war on the British side, and the Jeffersonian Republicans want him to get in it for the French. 
So the question of what is going to be the future relationship of Britain and the United States now that Britain is challenging America's right to be a neutral country, Washington hopes to solve this by sending a guy named John Jay to London to negotiate a treaty hopefully stopping the British from doing what they're doing, and also clearing up a lot of the old lingering problems from the Treaty of Paris. The British have still not withdrawn from the Western forts. There are still debts that they're claiming that the Americans want liquidated. So when Jay goes off, this is all very suspicious to the Jeffersonians because John Jay is primarily a Federalist and is more pro-British than he is pro-French. And when Jay returns with the treaty, in 1795, every fear the Jeffersonians had was confirmed. The Jay Treaty, as it becomes known, just utterly capitulated to the British demands. They were not required to stop blockading American ships. They were not required to stop pressing American sailors into the British Navy. There were a few little things that they did agree to. They did decide, ultimately, withdraw from their western forts. But this all lands in the United States of America and causes a huge scandal because they've just fought a war to break away from Britain. And what it appears that Jay has done is handed America back to the British. So Washington is now under extraordinarily large amounts of pressure to reject the Jay Treaty. But the Jay Treaty for Washington does one great thing. It prevents war from breaking out between Britain and America. He wants the country to stay neutral. So even though the terms of the treaty are pretty bad, he goes ahead and signs it. And it does do the one thing that it was meant to do. It keeps America out of the French Revolutionary Wars. Meanwhile, back on the home front and in domestic affairs, Washington's troubles are just as bad, if not worse, than they are in his dealings with foreign policy. The attempt by Washington to create a strong national government that involves the ability to tax the citizens of the United States is being challenged out in the western territories, out in the western counties, for example, of Pennsylvania. Congress has passed and Washington has signed a tax on whiskey distilleries. And whiskey distilleries is a way that western farmers have been able to supplement their income all of these years. And they don't like the fact that this tax is now being levied on their little particular corner of the economy, especially not by these elites over on the eastern seaboard who don't care about the plight of the poor farmers out in the western counties. This is a huge question now for the guys who fought the American War of Independence and are now trying to run the government of the United States. Because what is happening is a miniature version of what they all just went through. There is a tax by a faraway government that is being levied on us, the, you know, the poor beleaguered farmers, and we don't want to pay it. So they're rising up in revolt, just as had happened back in the 1760s and early 1770s. So is Washington just going to allow this to happen simply because it's sort of what he had just done? The answer has to be no. If the United States is going to survive, people have to submit to the taxes that are being levied on them. And the big difference, of course, is that all of those farmers are represented in Congress. They are represented in the state legislatures. They do have a say in how they're being taxed. So for them to reject it just because they don't want to, that is not going to fly with George Washington. And he actually, for the first time and only time in his presidency, puts back on his military uniform. He gathers together, federalizes a lot of the militias in the middle colonies, and marches them out into the western counties to, by force, ensure that the farmers pay distillery tax. So this is all known as the 
Whiskey Rebellion, and it is Washington's great statement that the federal government is here to stay, you are a part of it, you have a say in how it's run, and just because you don't like what it does, that doesn't mean you can just rise up in armed revolt against us. The Norwich Packet, a Connecticut newspaper, 25th September 1794. George Washington's proclamation offering a warning to those involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. A small proportion of the United States shall not dictate to the whole Union and at the expense of those who desire peace indulge a desperate ambition. I do, moreover, exhort all individuals, officers, and bodies of men to contemplate with abhorrence the measures leading directly or indirectly to those crimes which produce this resort to military coercion to check in their respective spheres the efforts of misguided or designing men to substitute their misrepresentation in the place of truth and their discontents in the place of stable government. Now, Washington, of course, never wanted to be president in the first place, and he didn't want to be president in the second place. He didn't want to get reelected. But he's done it all now out of a, a sense of, a really strong sense of duty. But by the end of his second term, Washington feels like he's done his duty. Since he was reelected, a lot of the taboos against criticizing him personally as the first president, which had been sort of a hallmark of his first term, it was you weren't to criticize Washington himself directly. A lot of the gloves come off, and Washington is now taking a bit of a beating in the press for his various decisions. He figures, okay, I've done enough. It's time for me to retire. Finally, uh, there is once again a round of begging uh, to keep him in, but there's no dissuading him this time. He says, no, I am not going to run for re-election in 1796. I am going to retire from public life. I'm done. Washington's decision to not run for re-election again was a very personal one, but it set, again, another huge precedent. And this is a precedent that is going to be followed until the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, and then after Roosevelt is actually inaugurated into uh, the U.S. Constitution as an amendment, that a president serves a maximum of two terms and then retires. And in the history of the world, there are not a lot of examples of a main executive leader who rises up, runs the country for a little while, and then retires. It's really once you get into a position of power, you're there permanently. And this being not a parliamentary form of government where people can vote prime ministers up and down, Washington really had the choice about whether or not he wanted to establish the presidency as something that would be held for life or whether there would be a fixed time limit on it. And Washington firmly fixed a two-term time limit on the presidency of the United States. So when he decides to retire, Washington composes, or more precisely has Alexander Hamilton compose for him, a farewell address to the people of the United States. Fellow citizens, the time for the election of a new citizen to administer the executive government is soon upon us. And the time has come for you to decide who will be clothed with that important trust. In order to allow for the full expression of the public, I feel it proper to decline from being considered among those from whom a choice is to be made. And in looking forward to the last days of my career in political life, I am filled 
with a deep sense of gratitude, which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me, and yet still more for the confidence with which it has supported me. Where he lays out a few key beliefs that he has in how the United States of America is going to survive. The two that have become the most famous are first, his injunction against forming political parties. Washington has been witnessing the backbiting, the factionalization of the United States, and he believes that unity is key. Unity is key to the survival of the United States, that you can't engage in factional backbiting. Uh, you need to get together and be, a, be the disinterested statesman that you are supposed to be. Now in this, Washington is laying down what is his personal principle, but he's already been overtaken by history. And of course, as soon as Washington leaves the scene, the United States is going to descend into one of the most bitterly partisan eras of, uh, of its political history. And then, of course, he also further cements the idea that the United States must remain neutral. This is an idea that he laid down with the neutrality proclamation, but he really wants to drive it home that the United States, if it's going to survive, cannot get engaged in permanent alliances with foreign powers, specifically the European powers. The United States is in no position at this point to play at their level. And so to get engaged in permanent alliances with France or with Britain or with you know whatever German principality happens to be on the rise, that is going to do far more harm than it will good to the United States. And then one of the other things that he slips in there is to say that the citizens of the United States are in fact represented in their various state legislatures and in the federal government, and that if those legislatures and governments say, you need to pay this tax, you need to pay that tax. Washington does in fact retire now from the world stage. He is, however, unable to permanently disentangle himself from what's going on in the country. His stepping away from the presidency has left everybody at the mercy of everybody else politically, and the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans really start to go at each other whole hog. Everybody's begging Washington to take a side, to, to back me, to back you. Washington is now a fairly confirmed Federalist. He has discovered that through his presidency, Jefferson has been secretly engaging in a war against the administration that Jefferson himself was serving in. Washington, by the end of his days, is referring to Jefferson simply as that man, as opposed to the friend and colleague and comrade that they had been all through the years of the American War of Independence. And Washington is now actively backing a Federalist interpretation of the United States. And so there comes a point in the presidency of John Adams, a couple years after Washington has retired, that America and France are really so at each other's throats now that they're preparing to go to war with each other. And Adams actually comes down to Washington and says, would you mind serving as commander in chief of the armed forces if we wind up going to war with France? And again, despite his you know utter longing to just be left alone, Washington does decide that he can't step away completely and does agree to at least don the uniform and if nothing else, be the head of the armed forces should war come. Although luckily for Washington, that war between France and the United States is never actually declared. 
and just becomes known as the Quasi-War, which is a, a, an undeclared naval war that goes on between the French Directory and the United States of America. This is well and truly Washington's last public contribution. And in December of 1799, he is granted his sweet relief from his duty to his country, and George Washington dies at Mount Vernon. The relationship between George Washington and slavery is one of conflict, contradiction, and almost a sheepishness about what he was engaged in as a prominent Virginia planter. In his early years, George Washington inherited slaves. His slaves ran his plantation, and that was just the way things were done. All of his neighbors had slaves. He had slaves. It was just the norm. As he moves along through his life and he grows up a little bit more, he starts to be very conflicted about holding humans in bondage. But he's unable to see a way out of slavery as an economic institution. If he frees all of his slaves, uh, he's essentially ruined. As he gets older, he starts to move in the direction of opposition to slavery. One of the first moves that he makes is that he's going to no longer sell slaves if it means breaking up their families. You know, if one slave has married another slave and they have kids, he's not just going to take the father and say, okay, well, I'm selling you to some guy in South Carolina. George Washington is not going to do that. Then as he gets older, he makes a further decision that he doesn't want to engage in the slave trade anymore altogether. He has lots of slaves. Uh, he has a couple of hundred. And he doesn't want to buy and sell human beings anymore. So again, he's still a slaveholder. He still has human beings as pieces of property, but he's trying to move away from it. But at the same time, for example, when he gets to Philadelphia, when he's, when he's the president in his first term, there's actually a law that has been enacted in Pennsylvania that says if a slave resides in Pennsylvania for more than six months, they will be freed by Pennsylvania state law. Washington is told about this law, and he has with him, you know, a little a little contingent of slaves who are helping him run his household. He finds out about this law, and so he and Martha have to get together and contrive reasons to send their slaves back to Mount Vernon or across state lines to restart the clock on this six months to stop their own slaves from being freed by the state law. So you have, on the one hand, Washington personally finding slavery distasteful, but at the same time engaging in these sort of like secretive machinations to keep his slaves as, as pieces of property and not allow them to be freed. By the end of his life, Washington 
is committed to the idea that he's going to free his slaves when he dies. Um, and this is something that he does right into his will that the 150 or so slaves that are under his personal, that are his personal property, as opposed to the property of the estate of his wife, will be freed upon the death of his wife. So they are all going to stay in bondage until Martha dies, and then they will be set free. Now, of course, <laughs> as a dark aside, when Washington dies in 1799, all of his slaves are told that as soon as Martha dies, you are going to be set free. And this puts uh, the poor widow Martha in a very awkward position because all of these slaves are looking at her and thinking to themselves, boy, if she dies, I'm going to be free. And there is a moment where a fire breaks out at Mount Vernon that is, some suspect, was set by slaves trying to do away with Martha so that they could be set free. And so to prevent any future attempts on her life, in 1801, Martha does set all of George's slaves free, and then when she dies a few years later, the rest of the slaves of Mount Vernon are set free. George Washington's views on religion, he was he was a devout attender of church. Uh, he was not a devout man religiously. He was not a true believer. He did believe that religion played a very important role in the social fabric of the community. So he was a uh, deacon in the Anglican Church. He regularly attended services. As president, he routinely attended church services. But he was deeply committed to the idea of religious freedom. And one of the things that he did while president was to attend services at different denominations. It was really important to him that church as a social institution be there to help the people learn morality, uh, to help keep them uh, being good neighbors and good citizens to each other. And he actually mentions in the farewell address that religion is an important part of the community, but also that one particular religion should never have domination over any other kind of religion. Freedom of conscience and freedom of worship was fundamental to George Washington's worldview. From the time that he was very young, George Washington was an active Freemason. It was a, an organization that he joined as a young man, as did most of his fellow Virginia aristocrats and freethinkers, which George Washington was. And George Washington treated Freemasonry very similarly to the way that he treated just organized Christian religion. It was a social institution. It was a part of the fabric of the community. It was good citizens getting together to discuss enlightened ideals and to be good citizens to each other and to the community. There is, of course, some speculation that the Freemasons were behind the American War of Independence, and it's true that a lot of the original founding fathers, Ben Franklin, were all Freemasons, but Freemasonry in the late 1700s was really just a middle class and upper class social club where guys would get together, have their meetings, they have their little secret rituals, and it was all fun, and then they would get about with the rest of their lives. Uh, Freemasonry certainly didn't have any revolutionary doctrines per se, and all you have to do is look at the other side of the lines and look at the entire British army and recognize that most of the British officers were Freemasons too to acknowledge that you know Freemasonry per se doesn't necessarily play a huge role in the uh, the outbreak of the American Revolution. From almost the moment that George Washington dies, he goes from being a man to a myth. He is, by 
leaps and bounds, the most mythologized man in American history. He really stops being a human being and becomes a symbol. But in a lot of ways, the symbol of George Washington is as real to the history of the United States as the man himself. Because all through the American War of Independence and the early years of the U.S. government when he's the president, you know, most people out there, most Americans don't have any direct contact with George Washington. He is just a face in a portrait. He is just an idea that is floating around out there. And there's really nobody you can point to in American history where you can say that one person symbolizing one idea had more to do with holding the United States of America together than George Washington. Through all of the disasters and the defeats and the setbacks, the fact that George Washington was still out there in the field and the fact that he was through his own personal magnetism and through his own abilities as a leader, able to hold the Continental Army together and keep them in the field, that basically wins the war. Had it not been for Washington's abilities as a leader and his own steadfast commitment to the cause, the passion for the project would have dissipated and people would have walked away from it. But instead, because of who he was, the Continental Army stays together and the war is eventually won almost by perseverance alone. And then when he gets into the presidency, the fact that he is the one who was president and not some other guy. You know, if Washington hadn't been there as a bulwark between the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians, the country might have had a civil war right then and there between the southern states and the northern states, which helped define the split between the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians. And maybe the United States of America would not have survived that first decade. But because Washington was there, he was a Virginian who was now sympathetic to more northern ideas about how the country ought to be run, because he was there in the middle of it, the country has a chance to survive when he steps away from power and it is handed off to these opposing factions who have very different visions about things. The framework of government and the framework of the United States is set enough that it is able to withstand the political fighting that is going to then define the next generation of American politics. And had it not been for Washington being there, the United States never would have survived and never would have even gotten off the ground. So the continuing myth of George Washington as the great founding father is going to persist then on through the decades and on through the centuries. You know, he's the face on the $1 bill. He's on the quarter. The capital of the United States is called Washington, D.C., when the northern part of the Oregon Territory wanted to form its own state and they petitioned for statehood, the Congress said, we'll approve your petition for statehood, but you have to call yourselves the state of Washington, which is why a state on the Pacific coast is named after a Virginia aristocrat. It is actually the, the only state in the Union that is named after a person. After a few years have passed, biographers will come along and start taking the bits of who he actually was as a person, setting those aside, and filling in these just completely made-up myths to establish him as this man, this utter paragon of virtue. You know, George Washington as a child chopped down the cherry tree. And then uh, when his father said, George, did you chop down that cherry tree? He said, yes, I did, because George Washington always tells the truth, and all American presidents always tell the truth. And this is something that then lodges in the brains of Americans who start having this sort of 
outsized veneration of their presidents. And it's not until the 20th century that this idealized Washingtonian version of the presidency really starts to be stripped away. People start learning to trust their presidents a little bit less. Main narration, Mike Duncan. Supplemental narration and research, Jeff Waterhouse, Thomas Daly, Craig Beck, Sean Daly, Harriet Carmichael, Susan Vollenweider, Ilias Fotuntakis, and production assistant was Oscar Bryan. Of course, I have to thank again my podcasting brother-in-arms, Mike, the history of Rome and revolutions, Duncan, for his amazing narration on the life of George Washington. Mike will be coming back to do the life of Tessie Roosevelt, and you never know what else we make or cook between us soon. If you have a product or service, why not sponsor 10 American presidents? Simply email me, royfield at gmail.com. That's royfield spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com where we can start a conversation. That will end in you sending me cash and your service getting promoted to tens of thousands of listeners around the world. If you don't have it service but would like to show your appreciation, you can hit the donate button on the website, which is www10 the number 10 usp.com and give me some of your hard-earned money. The link will say how do you make a conquer the world, but don't worry, that is me. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your amazing reviews on iTunes for 10 American presidents. It means a lot to have such positive reviews on the show. So please, if you like what I do and you haven't done a review already, please put one on there for me. And remember, there may be 50 stars on the Star Spangled Banner, but I only need five from you on iTunes. It sounds trite, but there is a great community of listeners around the show who contribute and you are right behind it. And you too can join them on Facebook by searching for 10 American Presidents, where you can pose questions and contribute to a future show. The majority of the narration on today's show was actually done by requests to that Facebook group. They are active, they are fantastic, and go join them. If you are on Twitter, you can follow the show where we are at 10USAP. The website is 10USP.com. Remember, those are numerals. You can follow me and my various other shows that I produce by following me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield, again spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-Z. I will also be doing some short shows on Periscope where I'll answer your questions about my work too. As I've said before, these shows take so long to do that the next one will be out when it's out. I'll see you on Facebook and take care. Don't forget there's iTunes reviews. They wind it. You can cut that. You can cut that. <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna to do a good job editing this all together, right? Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America.